Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Culture Lab. I'm Christy Taylor. This is the show all about how science plays out in our cultural creations. Sometimes we talk about the science behind popular TV and movies. Other times we talk to artists and authors about the research that influenced their works. For Halloween this year, we have a special trick-or-treat for you. Medical historian Susie Edge's hobby is telling her hundreds of thousands of followers on TikTok the true health histories of famous people, from Jonathan Swift's syphilis to the time, hundreds of years ago, that angry Dutch rioters killed and partially aped their prime minister. And she's got a new book out called Vital Organs, which I had a chance to sit down and talk to her about. It zeroes in on, you guessed it, the stories of specific body parts in history from Napoleon's penis to the surprisingly fashionable fistula surgery that King Louis XIV received, and even the research ethics of some of the earliest cases of medical miracles, like Alexis Saint-Martin, who lived for decades after an accident left his stomach partially open to the world. One word of caution. This is an interview about the human body and also the things that can go wrong with it. So as you might guess from what I've already talked about, you may find sections of it gory, gruesome, or otherwise difficult to listen to. And that's completely understandable. If it's not your thing, please come back to us for the weekly show on Friday. But if you're game, continue on. My first question for you is really just why write a book about all of these sort of famous organs throughout history? I've been collecting these stories of body parts for as long as I've been studying anatomy and physiology. I have to be really careful how I say that. I have to say stories of and not mm-hmm. just collecting body parts. <laughs> I get funny looks for that. Yeah, I've been I've just been fascinated by the human body for as long as I can remember. And I know I studied anatomy and physiology early on and molecular biology before I became became a doctor. And those those historical stories have always stayed with me. And I love to think of people in that way in terms of their bodies, because it makes them more real to me. When we mm-hmm. when we often we're reading history, we're talking about what people did, what people even wrote or what people said. And when when you think about them in terms of body parts or ailments or you know, it really makes them come alive to me in that way. And I was uh, writing my first book, which was all about the deaths of the kings and queens in England and Scotland. Mm -hmm. And as I was doing so, lots of stories were coming up of other, you know, other monarchs around the world or other characters around the world. And I just, I couldn't let them go. I had to bring them together as well. Well, and you have quite a few stories of particularly royalties, various, I guess, gruesome at times ailments. Are they just more widely written about in terms of, you know, like, a is it easier to understand, like, Kaiser Wilhelm's medical history than sort of ordinary people off the street at that time? 
Absolutely, yeah. People were were writing about the the big characters and the monarchs in particular, and they weren't always writing the truth because there was mm-hmm. there was often something to be said. There was often political agenda and and religious agenda and gain in writing about these people. But yeah, the 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 monarchs were recorded more. And and often, you see, what I wanted to do with this book was to find stories that were attached to a specific person. So if, if mm-hmm. I found stories where, um, as an example, maybe I would find stories where people might get their hands chopped off for various misdemeanors, but I couldn't find specific people involved. Whereas with the monarchs, often there were specific people involved you know louis the 14th had an you know i could have written the whole book about louis the 14th of france i was struck by many of your stories about louis the 14th and i Uh, definitely want to get to those he kept cropping up yeah well you know speaking of louis the 14th then and i I feel like i'm diving right into the deep end here with louis the 14th (laughs) but you know he had this very famous surgery for a fistula and i would love for you to kind of tell that story in your own words of course yeah, so at some point, Louis XIV felt a discomfort in his rear end. And rather than leave it alone, like anybody would do, he prodded and poked at it until it just got worse. Uh, his physicians did the same as well. They prodded and poked with hot irons and they put poultices on and, and herbs and tried all sorts of things. But but it just became infected and got worse. It grew into an abscess. And from there, it turned into a fistula. So a, a perianal abscess that turned into a fistula, that's a, a track that runs from one cavity to another, if you like. And he really, the only way to put it is to, he developed a new hole in his rear end. And it was causing a lot of pain, a lot of discomfort. The physicians eventually gave up and, and got in touch with the surgeons, how uh, they had to turn to the lowly surgeons who were in the streets chopping away. But they, they called on a chap called Felix, who came along and had a look between the king's legs and decided that he couldn't operate straight away. He had to go out and practice, and he practiced on the people of Paris. He found people in prisons and hospitals, and he developed an operation, and he developed tools. I don't really know what happened to many of them, but he came back to the king and he spent three or four hours between the king's legs de-roofing this fistula and cleaning it all out and the king survived and it became fashionable in court <laughs> then that one might look good if you if you'd had your own fistula operation as well i mean that's the part that that is wild to me that fistula operations became a fashion or that that people would have surgery just because the king had had surgery i mean this this almost speaks just to the even the sway, I mean, I'm coming from the US, but like the sway of royalty yep. in France at the time. The madness. And you know, it goes back to what we were saying before about the Ronics being written about. And there's all this reverence and this idea that he was a deity. And yeah, he, he, they wanted to be like him. And so cutting about in the rear end was, was, the, was the way to do it. I think I've told this story a hundred times. And yet every time it still makes me just think, oh, and I'd squirm as well in my seat. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I... And I, I just think of the people who were practiced upon in the name of healing the king. There's also This is also a medical ethics story at the end yeah. of the day, too. Yes. And that actually is a theme that comes up a lot throughout the book. There's a lot of thoughts about ethics, particularly consent, which is uh, just wild to me, some of the stories over the years. Well, let's talk about Alexis St. Martin. So he had this very dramatic chest injury or abdominal injury that laid bare his stomach for the world to see. And he also is a story of being a research, a professional research subject who eventually kind of objected to this. You know, tell us about him. 
This is probably one of my favourite stories, and I think that's because of the, the surprise that it elicits and continues to elicit as you sort of go through the story. But Alexis St. Martin was a fur trader from Michigan, and in the 1820s he was standing in line at a, a trading post. He was accidentally shot in the chest in the abdomen at close range. And a local military surgeon was called, a chap called Beaumont came along and had a look. And what he found, he described the scene. He said there were ribs and lung sticking out and he could see <sighs> the breakfast as well that St. Martin had had was, was oozing out. And he, he put him back together. And that to me is incredible. This chap survived. Beaumont, despite the doctor's interventions, he survived. But the, the wound healed and all around the, the wound healed, but he was left with this patent hole into his stomach and one could see in and see see what was in there and St Martin was a an illiterate labourer and he couldn't then find work again so Beaumont Beaumont pretended to be a very nice chap and gave him a job as a job uh, an odd job man within his home but his his real reasoning was that he wanted to study this chap with an open window into his stomach and study him he did because he did all sorts of things he he would put bits of food on string and put them into the hole and then pull them out to to see what had happened digestion wise and he wrote a book he 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 did hundreds of experiments and he wrote a book about it he became known as the father of gastric physiology and these were things that we couldn't see before because you couldn't see into a stomach before and although people had cut into animals to have a look it tended to die and also People didn't really quite believe that that us gentle humans had so much acid as the animals did. So these were things that were new. I mean, at one point, he even stuck his tongue in it to see what it would taste like. <laughs> but yeah, the, the, did he report this... back on the details of what it tasted like? <laughs> he said it was not quite as acidic as he thought it might be. <laughs> so right, right. a little bit, which is a bit disappointing, really. But yeah, that's what he said. But this is, again, yeah, he kept him and he studied him. And St. Martin wasn't that fussed to be this um, guinea pig, if you like. Uh, he tried to run away. And, and the Sergeant Beaumont at that point said, oh, this this young this young chap is, uh, this boy is um, so ungrateful. And that was the power, that was the power, wasn't it, that, that medical men had over others, particularly those who were illiterate. And, and he, he controlled him a lot. But Beaumont died quite young and uh, St. Martin managed to get away. And he lived quite a long life, actually. He had children. He lived many decades. Um, and I believe as a last act of resistance his, to him being studied, his family actually like set his body out to decompose. Was that was that yeah. what happened? Yeah, the the army still believed that there was more to gain from from his dead body and had sent a bag to the family saying, please put his stomach in the bag and send it back to us so that we can continue to study it. <laughs> and the family said no. And in fact, they sent a telegram saying, you know, if you come near it, you'll be shot. Mm-hmm. And yeah, they put his body out in the sun. They uh, they kept everybody away from it until it was it got to a point where it was too uh, putrefied for for anybody to want to study it. And uh, and to me, that's a very sad ending, mm-hmm. really. But yeah, he lived a long life with that hole in in his side. It's a remarkable story. I think one of the things that I took away from this book was just the odd things people could survive before we had um, what we think of as modern medicine at this time you know, the various surgeries and infections and amputations and, you know, mutilations of various kind <laughs> that um, people underwent to to cure conditions. But these are also stories of how our understanding of medicine advanced, aren't they? I mean, you know, as you said, um, Alexis St. Martin taught us about how stomachs work. I'm also thinking of the story of, um, is it Hugh Montgomery, who, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. similar to Alexis had, but his, his heart was open for folks to see incredible story and again he went on to have a family and 
live a long life and he had a hole which one could see his heart beating through he was even taken to the king and the king stuck his finger in to feel it and um yeah I think the thing about these particular stories is that they're rare they're few and far between because mostly people didn't survive yeah but when I tell these stories when I make the videos that I make online on TikTok for instance People often come back to me with comments saying, this is impossible, he wouldn't have survived before antibiotics. And I have to remind people that antibiotics, you know, compared to humans, <laughs> haven't been around that long. And although they do incredible things and save lives, the body is also very, very good at, at, at fighting as well. And there are a few people out there who have had incredible things happen to them, like St. Martin, like Hugh Montgomery, like Phineas Gage, who survived and you know have gone on to help us with an understanding, whether they consented or not, uh, with, with an understanding more of the human body. And those stories, those stories are all more remarkable for it, but the body can do incredible things. I mean, was there a story that you uncovered in writing this book or, you know, in the lead up to it that you found either wildly unbelievable mm-hmm. or very, uh, you know, I, I don't know if much can can put you off your meals, but <laughs> perhaps too gross for even you. To be honest, the, the story of Alexis Martin, when, when I've asked that question, he's the one that I bring up. And maybe it takes a lot to throw me off my my stride or my lunch, to be honest. Uh, there was a story of um, a woman called Fanny Burney, who was a novelist in the 19th century, who discovered a, a lump in her breast. And it got to the point where she couldn't really move her arm very well and needed help. And the surgeons decided that they were going to go in and, and operate. And, and they did. And there was no anesthetic. And she described this moment of seeing the glint of the knife come down towards her chest. And she could feel it scraping along her ribs as he as he carried out the operation. And she she wrote in a letter to her sister nine months later when she was still recovering. She wrote this letter describing the agony of that. And I, 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 I could feel it. I could feel it in her words. And yes, she was a novelist. And yes, she had the opportunity to to write those things down and and to uh, we can see that in the British Library those letters, but I still I felt it I felt writing those words I I could just you know feel that pain and uh, yeah had someone to thank for anaesthetic and antiseptics and what have you yeah for sure I mean besides anaesthetics the medical advances you talk about um, include like the first kidney transplantation the Herrick brothers who happen to be twins who. You managed to share kidneys without rejection. Was was this the first time that a successful kidney transplantation sort of took? Yeah, I uh, generally when I'm doing my historical reading, I go a lot further back. And despite surgical training, I hadn't really ever read much about the Herricks and the first kidney operation. And I was loving that story. The surgeons were trying to come up with ways to do it and were finding rejection after rejection. And there was an idea that closer family members could have a better chance that there was an idea of that. So Richard was talking to the surgeon and or, and said, look, I, I'd do anything for my brother. I'd give him my kidney if I could. And, it, and in a way, it was a throwaway comment. But the surgeon thought, well, hang on a minute. This is interesting. And, and, and mm. it turned out these, these brothers were identical twins. And so they went for it and it worked. And I, yeah, that's a, I just... I don't know how that passed me by in all my medical training mm-hmm. and historical reading that one. I loved that one. I mean, yeah, as we talk about sort of 
new frontiers in transplantation with, you know, xenotransplantation and even growing human organs in pigs, for example. It's really, it feels really remarkable to just look back to that one simple success that sort of kicked off Mm. uh, saving so many lives as transplants have. within my parents' lifetime as well, you know, Mm -hmm. not Mm -hmm. that long ago. Well, and, and you're also writing about like, it's surprising to me, I guess, to hear that, like, amputation, for example, is still a gnarly and difficult medical procedure, that it isn't something that we've necessarily, like, gotten down to a T or sorted. You know, tell me a bit more about that. Yeah, I think we have an idea that uh, that it's an easy option. And yet people are still left with incredible pain. And it's very, very difficult to deal with the pain. The job of the anaesthetist, really, afterwards, the, the chronic pain anaesthetists and specialists, they... They do a remarkable job, and and yet we still have issues. Although I, I was working with a with a surgeon a couple of years ago who who said to me that the amputation is often a way of it's not creating a disability; it's it's doing the opposite, you know, because it's done for a reason, and therefore you know. But but people still have issues with pain, and we see we see a huge number of we saw a huge number of casualties coming back from uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, didn't we? And 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 it's so, if not normalizing, we're starting to see again a lot more people with amputations but they they they're not out of the woods they're still still dealing with the pain why don't more infant formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. There are various accounts you write of, like Kaiser Wilhelm, for example, mm-hmm. whose physical disabilities are sort of attributed to him being kind of a, a mean, yes. nasty person. Yeah. I mean, to how, how much does that actually hold up for you in doing the research? We're still... We're we're still doing this to people in fiction, in the movies and in books, I was speaking to somebody last week who, who's writing um, Bond books and still he has this need or this want, I suppose, this desire to make the villain disabled in some way or have some sort of look about him that is a physical physical manifestation of the evil. Even though we talk about it, even though we say that we don't want to see that anymore, in fiction and in, in the movies, it's still happening. It still comes up. And we use it a lot. It's a, it's something that we've done for a thousand years. You know, people would write about the death of William the Conqueror in England. He, they wrote about how his body exploded because he was a nasty, horrible man and he deserved everything that he got. And we've done that ever since then. And we're still doing it. You know, when, when Putin invaded Ukraine, all these pictures were going about of his face and people were saying that this man had uh, a problem, maybe a cancer problem, and he was having treatments with chemotherapy and, and steroids. And therefore, that must be contributing to his reasoning for doing terrible things. We're still doing it. 
we're still looking towards the physical manifestations of disability and we're, we're associating that with evil. And yeah, it winds me up a little bit because because we talk, we talk the talk, but I don't think things have changed much. Well, and I mean, back into history again, too, um, you know, when you talk about like Napoleon or Adolf Hitler, um, people were looking at <laughs> the relationship to their genitalia as reasons yes. that they did what they did, which again sort of draws back to, you know, the body drives the mind in some way. Yes. I mean, Hitler, people were singing, people still sing this song about Hitler only having one ball and the other is in the Albert Hall. And there are other characters mentioned in that song, but people cling on to this idea that Hitler was um, somewhat lesser of a man in that way. And there's this idea that he had cryptorchidism, and yet, you know, this is a this is a, something that a lot of men have, and they don't go rampaging through Europe killing people. But there again, as you say, absolutely, there's this idea that it has to be a health manifestation. You know, you talked about Kaiser Wilhelm before that it's got to be something to do with his withered arm that made him the character that he was, and, and needing to prove a point, and therefore rampaging through Europe, starting wars. Uh, yeah, we're still doing that. Well, and we do that in the reverse too, right? I mean, looking at the brain of Albert Einstein, which was stolen upon his death. And, you know, this one guy had been like, was slicing it up into little slides to try to understand the root of the man who brought us relativity and not really finding it. Yeah. And I, I, I think that there's a, there was a disappointment almost in, in what I read, not from me, but from what people were disappointed in finding that Albert Einstein's brain was not this incredible, different, glowing thing that they cut <laughs> into it and found really it looks pretty much like yours and mine. There's a little bit of extra mm-hmm. growth in the corpus callosum, but the, the connections in there. But did that lead to his genius? Or did that come because of all the thinking that he did? You know, you can't say. And and people wanted to go in there and find a reason for that genius. And it's you're absolutely right. It's the same story, isn't it? We want to, we want to attribute it to this physical manifestation. And also, I think people want to find something so that they can go, oh, well, you see, we don't think like that because he was special physically. Therefore, we're OK. We're off the hook because we can't do it because he had something special. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. There's a lot about our relationship with death in this book too, like our willingness to be present or not with dead bodies, for example. You know, the the final chapter you write about exhuming dead queens, for example, just to have their bodies out and about. Did you see a shift over over history? You know, does it does it appear that there's a different relationship with the physical remains? now than there there was sort of at the time when uh, like Queen Inez of Portugal was <laughs> brought back mm. out of her grave. <laughs> yeah, I, I do. I do see a difference there, actually, that people do seem very surprised now that the Georgians and the Victorians in particular in England were, were just really into digging up <laughs> dead bodies and taking <laughs> bits and and looking to see if there was anything, you know, the thing about the thing about having a look at a dead body again over the last thousand years is that there was often a religious reason to do so. People were looking for signs of saintlyhood because an intact body was a sure sign of saintliness. And the opposite, of course, was a sign of the opposite <laughs> of saintliness. And so, yeah, the, the people they didn't mind. There's a wonderful story of William the Conqueror again, to go back to him. I'm going way back. Before he came over to England from France, he got caught up because the weather was really bad. And he had a lot of troops 
milling around waiting to get on the boats who were whose morale was dropping. So he went and dug up the body of um, St. Mallory and paraded this body around and and they all had to to bow before it and kiss it and you know worship this this body and it and in that way he was going to bestow some sort of greatness onto those troops and they went across and they conquered England so maybe it worked who knows but yeah again Inesta Castro a queen who was dug up by her her husband she was killed by his father the king and when he became king himself he thought well I want my queen back so he dug her up and he dressed her in robes and put a crown on her head and made people kiss her hand in reverence but more lately it's been nowadays that there's more of an idea that these Christian burials should be left alone to rest in peace and often it comes up that because we have the technology the technology of DNA analysis or CT scanning carbon radio 14 dating these sorts of things that because we have these now surely we should go in and answer the historical questions that we've had for years like for instance the two princes in the tower who went missing in uh, 1483 there were bones found in the tower of london in the 1700s and they were assumed to be those of the missing boys and they were put into an urn and they sit in westminster abbey and it's really divided the people I talk to. Half of them really want to get in there and open up the urn and, and do the analysis that we can do to see if we can find out anything. We could, if, if there was a DNA available, we could compare that to, to that that we have from the known Richard III, who was found under a car park in 2012. So we could do that. But the question is, do we want to? Do we want to go opening up that urn? And I think that 200 years ago, George IV would have been in there. <laughs> he would have been in there at the front of the queue, digging those those uh, bones up to have a look. But nowadays, it's a little bit of a harder harder sell. Well, and, and when you talk about that being a harder sell, it makes me think of the story you told about, it started with the philosopher Jeremy Bentham, who wanted his head preserved in order that like, people after him would be less afraid of death. And then he wanted it preserved in the Australian way, which was referencing the Maoris and their sort of sacred death tradition, right, of preserving people's heads. And the TLDR was that Jeremy Bentham's head turned out terrible uh, and frightening and horrible. But you turn it into the story about those heads from the Maori people that became this sort of curio for Europeans to trade around and have now become sort of an issue of, um, again, if we talk about ethics, you know, the returning of people's remains back to their people. And I, I feel like I just told the whole story for you. But I mean, how, how do you unpack all of that? Yeah, I started with Jeremy Bentham. That's where uh, that's where it started with me, because I didn't really know much about the the New Zealand, the Maori Mokomokai heads. I had seen pictures in the past, but I didn't know much about them. And I found that the New Zealanders were very good at preserving the heads. They had their way of doing it. They developed it over many, many years. And they, the heads of chiefs that were well tattooed were kept and were worshipped, I suppose. Maybe not the word, but they were kept. And also the, the heads of enemies as well were kept and were not treated quite so nicely, but they were preserved. So Jeremy Bentham thought this would be a good thing to do. He asked his friend, a doctor, to, to do his autopsy and to do that to his head and he just didn't get it right so his the jerry bentham's head is is quite the thing to look at but it certainly doesn't look like a preserved mokomokai head and it led me down you're right it led me down this path of finding out about all these maori mokomokai heads that are sitting in museums in america in europe in the uk and they're not necessarily on display because at some point it was realized that maybe it was a bit inappropriate but they're now just sitting in dusty shelves in the backs of museums and is that as 
as bad, perhaps. There has been a an effort. It started in France by a, a curator. I forget his name, but of a of a museum. He took over a museum probably about 2010, I think. And he he realised he found some of these heads and he thought these should go home. And it took a very long time. The French had said no. The French had said that anything that is in a French museum belongs there and and that is it now. And they also said that anything that is in in a museum, which was once a human body part, no longer is that. It's now an art of a different type of artifact and it belongs to France and they're not going home. But a number of things happened and eventually it was decided that these could go home and a lot of them have made their way back and the the Maoris are very grateful for that but one one of the things that really struck me was how see these heads were very very popular as the the trophy cabinets of the west you know one was really smart if you had one of these heads but they there weren't enough heads to go round and so hmm. at one point people imprisoned people imprisoned Maoris were tattooed so that they could be killed, so that the heads could be taken and sold as trophies, <laughs> yeah. and that um, that just blew me away. That that idea that that happened, I I had no idea. And yeah, it's nice that those are making their way home now. Is there a takeaway besides sort of these isolated stories that you hope people you know come away from your book with? That you know, aside from sort of the curiosity of googling how badly Jeremy Bentham's <laughs> head was pickled. Um, which I didn't think <laughs> yeah. was that bad, but I, I it, it also just looks kind of cartoonish. It does, but, doesn't um, it? Doesn't look real. Yeah, it does not. But I, I feel like that's what you get mm, <laughs> in yep. some ways when yep. you invent the panopticon. Yeah. Do you know? I a lot of the stories that we've been telling are terribly serious, aren't they? But I think at the end of the day, I just wanted to have fun with this because yeah. the human body is an incredible, incredibly strong thing, but it's also incredibly vulnerable, but it's also very silly. Yeah. And and there are some very silly ways to look at all these, the way we deal with the human body after death, particularly and body parts and all the rest of it. And I hope I hope that I had a lot of fun with it and tried to bring that across as well. As someone who communicates with so many people via TikTok, you know, what do you find drives people's interest is it just like, oh, gross? Is it, you know, morbid curiosity? Is it, is it like, you know, the Dr. Pimple Popper sort of yeah. uh, effect? I don't know if you have that in the UK. Yeah, yeah. Or, or is it something bigger? Yeah. I, I would love, I would really love that these stories that I tell, because they're just very short snippets. I'd love them to be gateway stories to the discussions that we've had, you know, like the ethics and the consent and what have you. I'd love that. But I think a lot of it, I think you're right. A lot of it is just being grossed out over cornflakes at breakfast time (laughs) and uh, the the sheer surprise at some of these stories uh, that does seem to drive people more more goo more guts more gore trying to push me to get a ban on on tiktok for sharing pictures of jerry bentham's head for instance i'd love these little stories to be gateways to people learning more about either the historical side or the scientific side you know those things i've been able to bring them together really nicely i think and i'd love that but i think sometimes people just like a good gruesome story don't they well thank you so much Susie. you're very welcome it's good to have a chat Thanks for listening to this episode of Culture Lab from New Scientist Podcasts. I'm Christy Taylor, and that was Dr. Susie Edge, author of the book Vital Organs, a history of the world's most famous body parts. You can find her on TikTok. If you liked this interview, make sure you subscribe to our feed for more like it. Plus, our weekly news podcast and the incredible Dead Planet Society, all dropping right here every Friday and Tuesday. Find more journalism from New Scientist on our website at newscientist.com, and bye for now.
This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.